This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast that Susie Dent and I have been doing for, oh, nearly two years now. And each week we meet up now virtually, me in London, she in Oxford, we're broadcasting from uh, the United Kingdom, and we talk about words and language because we both love words and language. You know that language is power. It's, well, it's how we communicate, particularly in a world where it's now considered dangerous to hug, to touch one another. How do you communicate? Well, you communicate with words. And so each week we gather to explore words. And we're going to have an episode today where we're going to talk about sex. If uh, you feel, oh, my children like listening to this program, I'm not sure how they, mm, uh, mm." well, this is our parental advisory warning. We are going to have a no-holes-barred discussion on the etymology, the language. Uh, Some of it's slang, some of it is technical, all to do with aspects of sex. So if you think, hmm, well, uh, in fact, what I would advise you to do is if you are uh, an adult, listen to this first before you share it with your children. You may feel it's an education for your children. It may even be an education for me. Talking about sex with Susie, I found is always uh, an education. I think this has come about because we mentioned fornication, didn't we, on our recent pasta episode. That's right. We were talking about pasta or spaghetti puttanesca, which is in Italian pretty much the prostitutes or the sex workers spaghetti. And I was talking about fornication and how it is probably linked to fornix in Latin, which meant the arches. And uh, very often bakeries in Roman Britain would be very near arches, apparently. So it was a a warm and safe place to stand. And the idea was that the prostitutes would stand near the fornix. And that is where we get fornicate. How interesting, near the fornix. So look, we've Mm. learnt something in the first minute, which is fantastic. Let's get down to basics and talk about, when we're talking about sex, what is the origin of the word sex? I thought it meant six in Latin. Oh, yeah. Um, No, the Latin sexus actually first referred to the two genders, well, two, Ah. two genders in those days. So sex entered the language in English, at least in medieval times. And in reference to sexual intercourse, it's only been used really since the early parts of the 20th century. So really, really recent usage. And you can guess which writer was probably amongst the first to talk about having sex. Well, was it D.H. Lawrence in the 1920s? Absolutely, it was David Herbert Lawrence, playwright, novelist, famous because he wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was a banned book in Britain for many years until about 1960. Sexual intercourse as a phrase is Mm. a 20th century turn of phrases. Well, the use of yeah, the use of sex at least to mean that. So the use of the abbreviation sex and to sex something up to use it in a kind of metaphorical sense. That's only been around since the 1940s. And then, of course, in 2003, it hit the headlines again. Do you remember when the claim, it was claimed that the British government had knowingly sexed up a report on whether Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction? And then people have been described as being sexy since the 
1920s, and that was transferred to anything from a kind of remote control flat panel TV to a LBD little black dress. That's the 1950s. So the kind of modern senses really are quite modern. We're talking 20th century um, for a lot of these. So sex is short for sexual intercourse, which we sometimes now say, you know, I'm sleeping with someone, meaning I'm having sex with someone. Is sleeping with old as well? As a phrase? No, I've only just looked this up and I'm really surprised by this. So if you'd asked me just off the cuff, I would have said probably 18th century, maybe at a push. Do you know what? It goes all the way back to old English and the Anglo-Saxons sleeping with, implying sexual intimacy or cohabitation and to sleep around to engage in sexual intercourse casually with a variety of of partners, that is more recent. So that's 1928. The first record that we have is Aldous Huxley, actually. Not him sleeping around, but he's mentioning it in a novel. But yes, sleeping with, surprisingly early. It's extraordinary. Well, now we've gone back to that, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon English. Mm. Let's confront the word fuck, because we've Mm. touched on it a couple of times. But just remind me of the origin of fuck, because that's the, the most familiar as it were, slang term for having sex, isn't it? I mean, I think I said to you before, ask any linguist for the most versatile word in English and fuck would be near the top of the list, really, because you can use it as a noun. I don't give a fuck, an intensifier, not a fucking clue. You know, you can have fuck me shoes, you can be fucked over, you can be a total fuckwit, fuck around, all of that. It is not an acronym for fornication under command of the king. So do you remember that story? (laughs) So that was a, it's a lovely myth attached to it. And I get this on Twitter quite a lot. And that is that it comes from a time when the population had been decimated by plague, decimated in its general sense, and the crown therefore ordered its citizens to go forward and procreate. And they were told to hang a sign outside their door, F-U-C-K, fornicating under command of the king, to show others that they should not be disturbed by royal decree. But I'm afraid it is literally fucking nonsense, that one. Um, The answer is far from simple. And in fact, a lot of etymologists will call fuck for letters in search of an etymology because we haven't completely nailed it down. But our best bet is that it is all about hitting. And the very first references to fucking in in the OED are not about having sex. It's all about hitting people. And you can find that in surnames like Mr. Fuckbeggar, Mr. Beggar Hitter, who was clearly quite a violent citizen. Um, And you remember a windfucker was an old name for the kestrel because it beats, it hits the wind with its wings. And in that case, that would take us back to the Latin pugnare, to hit, which means that fuck and actually pugnacious might share the same ancient root. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And actually, if we're going to get really, really bad, you know, you mentioned um, Lady Chatterley's lovers. Yeah. Um, you know, in around the 1700s, if fuck was printed at all, it was always F dash dash K. And these dashes and asterisks continued in a pretty recently, in fact, in attempt to avoid any charge of obscenity. And when there was an unsuccessful prosecution in the 60s of Penguin Books for the publication of Lady Chatterley's Lover, the prosecution counsel urged the jury to hold hidden from your wives and servants, this is a rude sentence coming up, a book that contained 30 fucks or fuckings, 14 cunts, 13 balls, six each of shit and arse, four cocks and three piss. That's how rude it was. 
<laughs> well, that's why I was only 10 or 11 at the time and I was away at prep school. I sent off for a copy. <laughs> <laughs> did your book, did your school intercept it? <laughs> they did. But it was returned to me when I left the school. Ah. And um, the spine was broken, so it clearly had been read by the headmaster, <laughs> by, by, the, by the matron, by the sportsmaster, by everybody, in fact, yes. Uh, have you wow. read it? Have you read Lady Chatterley's Love? I, ha- I read it years ago as yeah. well. I'm not as young as you. I think I was in my 20s when I read it. Yeah. yeah. Then there are very, as you say, the word fuck, there's so many variations of it. I do remember once in the 1960s, and I'd never heard this phrase, somebody actually sent me a note saying, do you fancy a buddy fuck? Oh. This, yes, isn't that interesting? Yeah, Have you well, heard of this yeah. expression? Uh, yes, fuck buddy I've heard of. I mean, ah. we talk about fuck buddies these days. Oh, well, maybe I've misremembered this. Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> maybe they were offering to be my fuck buddy. How old is that expression? Um, a fuck buddy? Well, I, how, what, what period this, was this that somebody This was... is in the 1960s in America. This could have been the most exciting part of my gap year, but I didn't seize the moment. No, you didn't. Um, well... If they did say this, then they were ahead of the OED, because here the earliest reference we have is 1973. Well, there you are. So mm. I imagine it was it was university, campus talk yeah. in the late 1960s. Was this a man or a woman? It was a woman. Because I think it was sort of, according to this, it says in early use it was particularly gay slang. So well, I don't know. Oh. I don't know. Oh, well, maybe I've misremembered the whole story, but it was the late 1960s during my gap year. So there okay. you go. I have um, a brilliant friend called Jonathan Green. Do you know, have you heard of Of course, Jonathan? I, of course yeah. I know him. So Jonathan Green is the slang lexicographer of our time. He has written what is, has been acknowledged as having written the OED of slang. Um, and it's written with huge authority. It's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, he's written also or pulled together from his vast database, amazing timelines of words for particular things from sex to police, to death, to drugs, to being mad, to alcohol, to, you know, being drunk, etc. And his timelines are extraordinary because what you do is you just look at a a particular subject and then you can see what people were saying back in you know the 1500s and then trace it all the way up to or all the way to the current day and I'm looking at the moment I'm looking at the one for um, intercourse which starts 1500 pay a bill at sight melting moments to dance the Irish jig to blow off the loose corns to thread the needle um, this is going right up to the 1800 to be in a woman's beef to lip one's nags in the gallop horizontal polo that's going right up to the 1900s and the one you will have heard of to grope for trout in a peculiar river i would urge people to look up the timelines of slang because they are absolutely brilliant jonathan green jonathan with an o but it's fascinating to see how we have created both kind of you know funny slang but also real euphemisms for sex since very very early on alternative words to fuck include things like bonk and boff and Bang and shag. What's the origin of shag? Yeah. Well, shag is a word with a lot of meaning. So shag, as in shag pile carpet, which actually has nothing to do with the sexual sense of shag, goes back to an, um, uh, an old English word for rough matted hair. So no surprise there. It's related to a Viking word meaning a beard. And then you've got the bird that's called a shag, and that's probably because of its shaggy crest. But the sexual intercourse sense uh, is first recorded in the late 1700s, probably goes back even before then. And it probably is related to another verb meaning to shake. So it's simply all about movement, that one. Whereas the sort of boff 
boink bang bodge thing is all about you know onomatopoeia and sound apparently i've never actually heard bang bodge boink and boff as the sound of sex but obviously some people did clearly your Um, lovers have all been quiet people but no, but actually it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it takes, you just, just talked about the history of fuck and how it might be related to hitting. All of those too can be used if you bonk somebody, if you boff somebody. It can also be used for hitting. So that that sort of connection is still you, there. You slipped boink in there. I mean, I've heard of bonk. I've heard oh, of boff. I don't think I might have made up boink. Boink, boink. That's a funny kind of sex. Do you fancy a quick boink? <laughs> You're a bit piggy about it. Yes, that's, that's marvellous. Oh. Do you remember those, there were things that you would sort of, uh, big orange things that had ears that you would bounce around on as Space a child. hoppers. Space hoppers. That's, they, they go boink, boink. <laughs> I don't think uh, that's quite what happens. I think we go bonking and we go boffing. We even go banging. I haven't heard about bodging. I think bodging, it must be going wrong. Do you fancy a quick bodge? That doesn't sound oh, like much fun. I'm going to look up bodge. Now, I've not heard this either, actually. Um, to bodge is to patch or mend clumsily. There's no sexual sense in this, but there might be in Jonathan's dictionary of slang. I'll have to look that one up. But like you, I would definitely not not say any of those. Well, there's things like, um, well, there's the real euphemism, making love, isn't there? Now, this Which, confuses a lot of people because yeah. making love, people go to a, a restoration play yeah. uh, and they hear somebody saying, oh, I made love to her. And yes. they think, because they're modern people, oh, they had sex, yeah. but they didn't. Making love up until the 20th century, really, was ex- giving expressions of love. It was. It was to woo or try to seduce um, people, wasn't it? And then the sexual sense came in about 1927, originally US again, to engage in sexual intercourse, especially considered as an act of love. So we've got nookie as well. (laughs) Nookie is a strange one because... I love um, the idea of nookie. It sounds very sweet, doesn't it? But actually, originally it was offensive. Do you remember nookie bear? Oh, nookie bear. Nookie bear was yeah. a character that the ventriloquist Roger de Courcy used to have. And the original yeah. Nookie Bear is now with my Teddy Bear Museum collection at Aww. Newby Hall in Yorkshire. So if you want to go and visit Nookie Bear, he's still there. Why was he called Nookie? Well, it was naughty. He was a naughty ah, bear. And Nookie okay. loved a bit of Nookie. Oh. When does Nookie come in as a term for sex? Well, it's related to a nook as in an interior angle that you might find, like a corner or a recess in a room. That's ah. where we think it comes when You've got ingle nook, etc. But nookie first referred to a woman considered as a sexual object. So it was pretty offensive. Um, 1928 was um, that one. And then very soon after it began to refer to sex. But you'll see from this one, this is from a novel in 1930, you'll see that it's still pretty sexist. Um, Hendrix said he'd picked up with a skirt that was a warm baby and he was getting his nookie every night. So just to call the woman a skirt is, you know, tells it. It's but it's it, interesting, it is. these new terms and this language seems to be mostly 100 years old. We're celebrating, yeah. this is coming in the 1920s. All the people who've mentioned, Aldous Huxley, D.H. Lawrence, this yeah. last example, these are all late 1920s. There are older terms like copulate um, yes, that have been around. That, that straight also Latin, mean, coitus also. Um, that is straight Latin. That simply means bringing together. They all mean bringing together and completing, really. Like to consummate, to consummate our union. Yes, same thing. So it's interesting we use the term making love mm. because, of course, much of what we're describing is making lust or rather yes. the act of lust rather than necessarily an act of love. Is there a mm. heritage that's interesting of, of love versus lust? 
Well, love is from a really ancient root, as you would expect. And that also gave us the German Liebe and it gave us libido. And it also gave us leave, as in to take leave if you were a soldier, because it was all about trust, really. The real or root of this, the original root, was all about giving someone permission because you trusted them. So furlough, believe it or not, goes back to the same root, furlough being a word that we heard of so much this year. So love is related to Liebe, it's related to libido, and lust, simply, if you say in German, ich habe Lust auf whatever, that just means I would like something, I want something. So Lust means desire, but in German it can mean all sorts of different things. And if something is lustig, it's funny because it's it's desirable, because it's funny and makes you laugh. So lots and lots of siblings along the way. Very good. Are you in favour of love and lust or lust without love? Do you take a position on this? That's a very deep, deep question. Um, I think there's room for both, isn't there? Yeah. And it's yeah. best when they come together. Well, of course. <laughs> Speaking of which, coming together. <laughs> yes, oh, that's all really good. We're steering clear of any kind of obvious You're vulgarity. You're back to the groping for trout in a peculiar river. And actually, do you know, that that's, was a Shakespearean one, From Measure to Measure. Do you know that one? Measure for Measure. It's a, yeah. actually a very grim play. Is because it? it? Yes, it basically involves, well, rape. It involves oh. corruption in high places and taking physical advantage. It's a tough play on sexual relationships. Um, completely fascinating. Shakespeare has a whole range, doesn't he, of euphemisms. I mean, my favourite is making the beast with two backs, which I know... That's Othello, isn't it? Yeah, that is Othello. And Othello is full of the most amazing animal imagery of a sexual nature. And uh, in Act One, Scene One, Brabantio asks Iago, what profane wretch art thou? And Iago responds, I am one, sir, that comes to tell you your daughter and the moor are now making the beast with two backs. Mm. And that is because he's saying that Desdemona, who is the daughter of Brabantio, and the moor of Venice, the great leader, military leader, Othello, are, well, in fact, they've got married. And it's a, actually, it's a very vivid image, isn't it? If you see an animal with two backs, because obviously they are doing it traditionally, in the what is known as the missionary position. How old is the missionary position as an expression? The missionary, isn't that, isn't that strange, the missionary position? I, I've, I've always found it very, very odd, even having gone to a convent. I'll, I'll look it up and see. I hope that the editor of the OED is not currently looking up my search history, uh, but he's probably used to it, to be honest. Uh, right. 1929. It's all um, in the 1920s. Isn't this interesting? It says sexual life. Oh gosh, this is just this, this is awful. Totally imperialistic, but it's obviously a chronicle. It says the sexual life of savages. Isn't that awful? And it says the natives despise the European position and consider it unpractical and improper. So that is obviously they're talking about the missionary position here. But how interesting that people regarded it as improper and. Was it unsaid and impractical? Uh, imp impractical. But um, yeah, so 1920s, you're right. There is definitely a kind of timeline going on here, isn't there? I mean, there are some others that are probably around the same time. So, um, and quite often them, often they are quite sexist. So a bit of crumpet, for example, or a bit of how's your father? Oh, yes, a bit of how's your father? Panky, panky. Do you fancy a bit of, oh, slap and tickle, a bit of crumpet, a bit of how's but, your father? Yeah, crumpet's not, a, a crumpet derives from a really misogynistic view of a woman. So it was women regarded collectively as a means of sexual gratification. And but we love was, crumpet. I love, don't you love a crumpet? 
Well, I do love a crumpet, but not in the not in the sense that whereas it's dismissing women. But um, no, yes. Not. So that and then, how's your father? That sounds to me a little bit like the sort of Victorian euphemisms for trousers. Do you remember those? My sit-upons and my unmentionables, my inexpressibles, my round me houses. Oh, that's 1968. Now, you will like this, actually, Giles, because Alan Corrin is the first record in the OED, in Punch. If you're after a bit of How's Your Father, he said evilly, you can't go wrong with Tori Molinos. (laughs) (laughs) He was Um, a very witty writer. Anybody wants to enjoy... Good comic writing. Look up the works of Alan Corrin, the father, incidentally, of Giles Corrin and Victoria Corrin Mitchell, as Mm. she now is. And I'm proud to say he was a friend of mine years ago. Now, look, there are other euphemisms. Let's just rattle through a few euphemisms before we take a break. Some of us may need to go and lie down. Shaking of the sheets without music. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, is that's that, medieval, that one. That goes back no, to the Middle Ages. Really? I think so, yeah. There apparently was a dance of the time called called that, but the bit in brackets was kind of, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink thing, the innuendo. In fact, oh. innuendo, just to let you know, goes back to the Latin nuere, meaning to nod, because you're nodding in the direction of something rather than actually saying it out loud. Ah, so shaking of the sheets, brackets without music. So when we were shaking of the sheets, that's a fun thing to do. And of course, it's actually as you, the sheets go up and down. Boom, 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 boom. And Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, it rather dates me when there were sheets. Oh, um, that's true. It's been you, a long time. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it has been. It has Shaking been. Shaking of the duvets. But can I um, say, it's easier to talk about than to do at my age. Dancing the <laughs> Paphian jig. Yes, so Paphos on Cyprus was sacred to Aphrodite and Aphrodite was the goddess of sex and love who gave us aphrodisiac, whereas Venus, unfortunately for her, gave us venereal disease. Oh, of course yes. it did. Well, there's another one to wind somebody's little ball of yarn. Have you heard of that one? Um, well, that one apparently featured in a 19th century folk song where the singer asks a pretty girl if he can wind up her little ball of yarn, which is just one of the worst euphemisms I've ever heard. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's slightly menacing, that one, I would say. But yeah, I've never heard that one. I don't think that one's used these days. I've heard things like horizontal refreshment, rumpy like pumpy. Don't you quite Do you like, like horizontal refreshment? I guess so. Rumpy uh, pumpy is another one, isn't it? That sounds like real carry on to me. Oh, let's have a bit of rumpy. Let's have a bit of rumpy pumpy. Sid James. Fun idea, isn't it? Oh, dear. What about Rogering? Oh, Oh, yes. Oh, poor Roger. Poor Roger. As, As you know, the advertisement for Viagra that says, take Viagra. It won't make you Sean Connery, but it might make you Roger Moore. (laughs) Um, So Roger was an old word for a penis, a bit like Johnson, really, Um, was coarse slang, as it said in the OED. That goes back to, oh gosh, so many different words for this, but 1644. Good grief. And perhaps Sir Roger follows Mrs. Bride to her apartment where he uses pungent and pressing arguments. That's from 1679. And then Rogering, meaning having sex, well, usually of a man at least, is from uh, 1600s again. Yeah, the master Rogered such a one. So why poor Roger was chosen for this, I'm not sure. But the word again, like that was sometimes written with asterisks and dashes to avoid the charge obscenity. What I think is interesting about all this, Susie, it's one Mm. of the reasons that etymology is so fascinating, is that whether we like the terms or like the way they were used or not, they are history. They tell Mm. us a lot about people's attitudes to different subjects, don't they? And and we're learning a lot about people's views of of sex and relationships in these words. What about see a man about a dog? 
What's he meant about the dog? I have never, ever heard in the context of having sex. I've always heard it in terms of needing the loo. There's a brilliant sketch with the Monty Python uh, people for which when our, in our euphemisms episode, which purple people can find again in our archive, they talk about all sorts of euphemisms for going to the loo. And the one that sticks at the end was um, visiting the donut in Granny's greenhouse. Um, <laughs> but they mentioned seeing a man about a dog. <laughs> visiting the donut in, in, in Granny's, Granny's greenhouse. greenhouse. Oh, yes. I love it. Oh. But I am going to look up now, seeing a man about a dog, and um, I've never heard it ever in terms of small sex, but you obviously have. Okay. While you look that one up, let's take a quick break. We've got a Viagra advertisement coming up. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where we are talking the language of sex. And I think the last thing that Giles mentioned, Giles Brand was sitting opposite me, by Zoom anyway, was Viagra. I think that, I'm not sure this is completely true, but I've heard that that, Giles, comes from, uh, the word Viagra comes from Sanskrit for tiger. Not Ooh. sure if that's true or not. As in put a tiger in your tank. <laughs> Maybe, because <laughs> that was a famous advertisement. Once upon a time. That was before. for petrol, wasn't it? It was, but, but, the, but the phrase was put a tiger in your tank and maybe that's what Viagra is supposed to do. I have no idea. I think Viagra comes after that. But is it true that Viagra was first intended for use as a, was it heart medicine? But its side effect was the one that people enjoyed the most. So they switched its, its application. Is that true? I've no idea. I'm not a student of Viagra, Viagra. I, I, you know, as you know from my our episode on lotions and potions, I try mm -hmm. to avoid all pills of every, of every kind. Yeah. So go to see a man about a dog. What's the origin of that? Okay, so going to see a man about the dog, it seems that it can be used as a euphemism for all sorts of things. So you might, you know, where you don't, you don't want to sort of say out loud where you're going and what your destination is. So you might then say you'll, you want to go to the loo and you'll use it that way. Apparently Donald Trump used it on The Apprentice and of course then claimed to have coined it because he has all the words. Um, but yes, it's an undisclosed appointment. And so it can be, I think it's more often used for the loo. I think I was right there. But you, if you want to use it about sex, that's absolutely fine with me. But not, not with me, obviously. Well, I think that's all we need to talk about sex for today. If you've got queries or questions of a sexual nature that you want to share with us, Susie will do her best to give you the benefit of her wisdom. And mm. get in touch with us. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Something without a G. Yes, we didn't even talk about jiggery-pokery. Didn't we talk about jiggery-pokery? We didn't talk about jiggery-pokery. We'll do that next time. Fancy bit of the other? There's so many. This isn't, this, well, but it's because it's a fundamental thing, sex. Yes. That's why. Of course it is. Of course. I mean, you know, we could do loads of episodes about sex and about death. We did do a, we did do a show on death, but I think it was mostly to do with, you know, as I say, the sanitization of it. So in a way, it's nice that we don't sanitize sex all the time, because as you say, it is fundamental. And I think people speak much more freely about it these days, which is only a good thing. Is it only a good thing? 
Or is there... You think the romance has been taken out of it? Well, I wonder also if reticence isn't quite nice at times, being too upfront about things. I also, I have to say, we've used the F-bomb endlessly here today, Mm. uh, but I hope we did give a health warning at the beginning, because I I know there are some people who don't like these words, Mm. and I've occasionally been... I travel on the bus a lot, not so much at the moment, but I used to travel all the time on the bus. And occasionally I'd be sitting with some older people and there'd be some younger people on the bus using F-words, C-words, bad language. And I know I could sense with some of the people near me, they found it uncomfortable. I think it's because it can come across as being quite aggressive. Mm. So I think I I totally understand that because I think if you are, if they're just throwing it in for effect or in a sort of lazy way, I'm with you. I don't really like it either. For, For me, a good swear is one that you do for yourself you know, I've often talked about lelochesia, that relief of stress and frustration, etc. And for me, it's very much a kind of self-utilising thing. I don't use it to kind of make myself sound clever or whatever. And if you hear kids coming out of a secondary school, I wince as well because I just think, oh, come on, you know, you don't have to do this. So I think spare it for the proper occasion. That's what I would say. Well, fuck me, Susie. We've almost run out of time. And we haven't dealt with people's questions this week. And we've got no. lots of people getting in touch with us. Who do you want to, whose letter do you want to share with us first? Oh, uh, well, we have a nice email from Mark Bielas who thanks us for the podcast, Giles, because he said it injects some excitement into the long COVID weeks, which is lovely to hear. And he asked if we could discuss the origin and usage of words that generalise an item like gadget, gizmo, thing and widget. Um, And I think I've talked about thing before because it started off meaning something so important in languages like Icelandic and Scandinavian languages where thing was an assembly of really important people where you would discuss a very essential issue of the day. And you still have the other thing in uh, Iceland, which is the parliament. But thing for us has gradually declined over the years and the centuries to mean literally anything. It's just kind of catch-all, isn't it? Which I think is quite sad. Though, interestingly, to interrupt you, is that a thing is now an expression that people use. And that's almost elevating it back to where it was. Is that a thing? Meaning, is that something important? A lovely observation. Yeah, Hmm. that's a lovely observation, actually. Quite right. It would be interesting to see if it goes back the other way. So I'm going to start with Gizmo. 1940s, we genuinely don't know where that one comes from. We do know that sailors were the first people to talk about gadgets. And the word started out in nautical slang. And and there already it was a general term for any small device or mechanism or part of a ship. You remember that the word gremlin began in the RAF with uh, pilots who would use a gremlin for any kind of mechanical malfunction. So gadget is doing pretty much the same thing. It's a catch-all for any, any small mechanism. 1886 is the first recorded use we have. And they refer to lots of other things, actually. I'll read you the quote. Then the names of all the other things on board a ship. I don't know half of them yet. This is from a a nautical log. Even the sailors forget at times. And if the exact name of anything they want happens to slip from their memory, they call it a chicken fixing or a gadget or a gill guy or a timmy noggy or a whim wham. So it may come from gachette, which in French is a lock mechanism, or they also have a gadget for a tool. So it might come from there. Widget is an alteration of a gadget. So it began meaning a small gadget, a weenie gadget. It then, do you remember, it became this device used in beer cans to um, to give it to give beer a creamy head because it introduced some sort of nitrogen into it. That was the widget. So um, so there you go. Yeah, look, we have so many of those. Ask anyone what they call the remote control, and most people will have a different answer. They're 
family. We may have to have a whole gadget gizmo widget episode. (laughs) Here's a letter from Jean Shute in Auckland, New Zealand. I love the way people listen to this program all over the world. Thank you for being with us. I was rereading an old favourite novel and came across a phrase used by an elderly character who said, I felt it in my waters. I understand the meaning. I think it's similar to, I felt it in my bones. But why waters? What waters? Do you have any idea of the origin of the phrase? I've noticed it's often used by older women. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it could refer to the sort of fluids in our body. You know, there's so many references to that. Do you remember hysterical goes back to the idea of a floating uterus, one that wasn't in its correct place. The Greek for a a womb was husterus or hustera. And so the idea was that you were hysterical if your uterus wasn't quite, you know, it was floating around. So it may refer to the waters of the body. And if you look it up, to feel something in one's. There are lots of different variations. One of them was the marrow, to feel something in one's marrow. So the tissue of your bones, which are really sensitive to extremes of heat and cold and that kind of thing. And with all of these, the idea is it's the innermost part of your being. Well, staying anatomical, just time for one more communication from Marjorie Critch-Hyam. And um, she's one of our regular listeners. And she says, hello, Susie and Charles. While cutting across a park field with our beautiful dog, Bonnie, my husband and I both said, keep your eyes peeled. We were desperate to avoid dog poo. I'd love to know why we use the word peeled. This one has always, always got to me. It just makes me squirm even saying it because I'm just very weird about my eyes. Well, this one too has got many variants on it. Uh, It goes back to 1844, the first record we have. So not too old, this one. But one of the variants that it was riffing off is to keep one's eyes skinned, which is even worse. I know, awful. But the idea is that you remove any barrier so that you absolutely keep a very, very close lookout for whatever it is that needs to be found. Well, I keep a close lookout every week uh, for your trio, the three words that I want to put into my vocabulary. And I've discovered the only way to make this work is to write the words down when you say Mm -hmm. them and then to try to use them during the week. Otherwise, they just slip from the memory. So tell me, what are the three words I've got to write down this week and why? Okay, well, one I just think is always nice to remember, and it's just a very pithy way of describing somebody who deserves credit or gratitude. And there are so many individuals that, you know, wow, this year are are really deserving of both of those things. And that's simply thankworthy. So you say a thankworthy individual. Yeah, it's just really pithy. I mean, you understand it completely immediately but um you know it's good isn't it Mm. this other one i suppose is slightly in keeping concupiscence concupiscence i'd say concupiscence oh there you go concupiscence Uh, spell it for me jazz this is a challenge for you oh con c-o-n yeah q q Mm c-u-p-i s-e-n-c-e it's S C E N C E. So you just oh. missed out the C, but very, very good. And no, it not simply very means good. wrong. <laughs> it simply means having the hots. <laughs> oh. So it's lust, really. To concupiscere in Latin meant to desire vehemently or ardently. So that's what it is. It's it's an old, slightly masked way of saying lust. Ooh. And um what else was the the last one? Well, I think this this applies to me sometimes actually. Not very sexy in the context of what we're talking about today. So try not to be a microlipet. M-I-C-R-O-L-I-P-E-T. A microlipet is somebody who gets all worked up about trivial things. 
Oh, a microlipid. Well, that yes. could that could apply to sex, couldn't it? All worked up so. about trivial things. Ah, oh, for goodness sake, what, what was all the fuss about, mate? <laughs> I'm a natural microlipid. I like it. Yes. He, he, there was concupiscence from him, but you were the microlipid. Yes, well, he's certainly not thankworthy. That's the way to use it. I think what one should do is take the three words and try and work them into a story or a sentence, if you okay. want to remember them. Every week on Something Rhymes with Purple, we get a treat a trio from Susie Dent, new words to enhance your life. And this Christmas, if you want to give a present to somebody, I recommend her book. It's called oh. Word Perfect, and it's got an interesting word for every day of the year. I'm going to finish with a little poem written by a friend of mine, and it's got, a, I felt it was an appropriate poem for this week. It's a, it's a limerick. It's a limerick about Yay. language. Okay. And you know how some words sound so similar but actually have different meanings? This is by my friend Mike Plum, who is one of the leading lights in the uh, Queen's English Society. You lied or you lay or you laid. Let me speedily come to your aid. You laid tables and plans, lay in bed or on sands, and you lied about having got laid. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope you managed to get through it with a smile on your face. Um, do let us know and obviously let us know if there are any themes that you would like us to touch on, actually, or any subjects that we haven't covered yet. The email is purple at something else.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale, and, well, I just refer you to those timelines I was talking about earlier. It's Gully. He's thankworthy. Oh, he is always.